Hey, you guys, welcome to the well. You can have a seat. I'm super glad to see you guys here tonight. How many of you guys are feeling a little bit of stress as you kind of walk in the room tonight? Yeah, this is a stressful time. I have really good news for you tonight. There are only five days left till spring break, right? So something we've been saying around the office lately in the words of our good friend Chris Peters, we are gonna make it. We're gonna make it. You're gonna make it. Five more days and you're on spring break. But I'm wondering with all the stress you're feeling, how many of you guys feel a little bit like this? <laughs> right? Hanging on for dear life. Or maybe you feel a little bit like this. <laughs> or maybe a little bit like this. I know, if you like cats, you think it's cute, but you know. Or maybe this one's the most realistic, right? Just hanging on, we're gonna make it, life is crazy. So here's what I want you to do. Turn to a couple people and just say, hey, this is what's crazy for me right now. This is what has me overwhelmed. This is my stress. Just like name it, right, to each other, and then we'll move on. Okay, so as not to dwell too long on the hard things, right? It's safe to say that we all have a lot going on. Um, there's just a crazy time of the year. I, in my years in campus ministry, I've noticed a couple times in the year that are like super stressful, and this week is one of them. You have a lot to do before you're going on spring break. Some of you guys are leading trips, and there's just a lot going on. So in the chaos that we're all kind of finding ourselves in, and that could be chaos from pressure with school, that could be chaos with just stuff going on in your life that you carry as you walk in this room tonight. But in the chaos, we all need a firm place to stand. So we're not like blown away like that guy. Right? We just need a place to stand. And I think that King David was living in some chaos when he wrote the psalm that we're going to look at tonight. So we've been walking through the psalms this semester. Tonight we're going to look at Psalm 63. You can open up to it for just a second. I'll probably have you close it later, but open to it for now. Um, when David wrote Psalm 63, he was definitely in some chaos, and he reminds himself what to stand on. So as you look at Psalm 63 in your Bible, look before verse 1, and what does your Bible tell you about where David is? He's in the Judean wilderness, or the desert of Judah, some of your Bibles will say. So let me show you where this is and what this place is like, because I think the place David is in when he writes this psalm has a lot to do with what we can gain from it, and I'll also tell you why he was there. And so that's kind of where we're going to start before we get to the text tonight. So this is a map of the land of Israel, um, kind of like this whole section. There's a little more up here that got cut off, but right about here is the city of Jerusalem. And that's where David ruled as king, okay, in Jerusalem. And all of this brown area here is what's called the Judean hills. Very lush, lots of agriculture, lots of trees, lots of ability to live there because there's water sources. But as you head down into this area right here called the Judean wilderness, first of all, there's a giant drop. So from the Judean hills down to the Dead Sea, which is this body of water right here, there's a 2,500-foot drop in elevation, okay? So it's really severe, and it happens over the course of about 12 to 15 miles, okay? So as you're driving from Jerusalem, even today, down to the Dead Sea, your ears are popping like crazy because just you're going way, 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 way down. Um, 
Also, not only the elevation changes, but the terrain changes. So up in the hills, you've got all kinds of trees and vegetation and water sources and life. And as you head down into the wilderness, um, everything down there is made of this rock called Sinonian chalk, which you don't have to remember. But what you need to know about it is that the water does not saturate that Sinonian chalk. Instead, it, it kind of rolls right off of it and creates all these really deep crevices in the rock making it very rugged, lots of sharp edges. And I'll show you some pictures of that too. But also down here, there's only like eight inches of rain a year. So between the really rugged, sharp, difficult terrain and the lack of water, it's impossible to grow anything. And life is very, very difficult. So the translation of all of that is that the Judean wilderness is hot, it's dry, it's incredibly rugged, nothing grows there, really, and it's a really hard place to spend a lot of time, and that's where David is when he writes this psalm. So I think that will help us understand. Um, here are a few pictures. So this is kind of an aerial view of a portion of the Judean wilderness, and um, what it kind of looks like in overview, but as you go down into it, it starts to look like this. And this is what I mean. The water cuts these really rough crevices and edges in the rock, um, and it's just really rugged and tough terrain, hard to be in. Um, so this is what you need to picture as you're kind of thinking about where David was. A couple other things that happened here, interestingly, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Do you guys remember this story? Luke chapter 4 was here in the Judean wilderness, somewhere in this same desert where David is hanging out when he wrote the psalm. Um, David has also been in this desert before. Another time, before he was king, Saul was king and got jealous of David and wanted to kill him. That's a long story. But, but David ran through this desert hiding from Saul. Um, very hot, very rugged, very difficult. And now David finds himself there again. Okay, so that's where we kind of come to, to the psalm we're going to look at. Let me tell you why he's there. This time around, David is king, and two of his sons are having a little bit of drama, okay? So he has two sons, Absalom, he has lots of sons, but for our purposes right now, two sons, Absalom and Amnon, and they have different mothers. Amnon rapes Absalom's sister. So really awful story. And Absalom gets very angry, and so then kills his brother, Amnon, eventually, and then Absalom flees to another land for like three years to hide because he killed someone, killed his brother. Eventually, David's servant, Joab, says to David, we should probably bring Absalom back. Like this should be mended. And eventually, David allows Joab to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. He comes back to Jerusalem, spends two years there without even coming into the presence of King David, which he probably didn't appreciate so much. Like, why am I here? You won't even see me. And from that point on, once David finally sees him, he spends four years literally undermining the leadership of David and winning, the text tells us, winning the people's hearts, basically planning a takeover of the kingdom. And eventually, it tells us that Absalom collects horses and a chariot and like 200 men come with him sort of unknowingly down to the city of Hebron, which is a little bit south of Jerusalem, and once he's there, he has these people declare that he is now king, totally stealing the throne from his father. David gets word of this, 
And now David is afraid for his life because there's this uprising of all these people that are following Absalom. And now David says to his household, we've got to get out of here. We've got to flee. We've got to run away because Absalom's going to come with all these people and kill us and take over the throne. So guess where David goes? Back to the desert. He climbs down that really rugged, steep descent from Jerusalem down into the Judean wilderness where it's hot and rugged and all the comforts he knew of life as king were gone. Not only that, but his heart is broken. His son is now trying to chase him down, take the throne, get rid of him. He's been betrayed. He's lost everything. He's hurt. He's lonely. And he's hanging out in this place where it is really, really hard. So I wonder if any of that sounds familiar to you. Any of the betrayal, the fear, the anxiety, the unknown future. I don't know what's coming. The loss. David lost everything in that moment. Maybe it's even just feeling like you're in the desert. Like it's hot and it's dry and it's lonely and nothing's good. So text. This is the context of Psalm 63. So before I share these words with you, I just want to pray. And I want you guys to close your Bibles. And I just want you to listen to these words of David from this situation, from this place. So let me pray. God, thank you for bringing us to this time and this space tonight. God, thank you that you know our hearts. You know the stress that we walk into this room with. God, you know the hurts, and you know the disappointments, and you know our needs. So God, we pray that your word would speak, that it would encourage us, and that we would hear from you in it tonight. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. These are the words of Psalm 63. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul longs for you, my body thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. And with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. Those who seek my life will be destroyed. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals, but the king will rejoice in you. Everyone who swears by your name will praise you, but the mouths of liars will be silenced. This is the word of the Lord. 
So I'll be honest with you guys, I originally chose this psalm because there's a verse in here that's been really meaningful to me for a long time. I chose it originally because it was February, and what holiday happens in February that some of us love and some of us hate? Valentine's Day, right? So I was just thinking there's got to be something that we could speak to about that. So look at verse 3. You can open back up to Psalm 63 and look at verse 3 with me. This verse has been great in my life, and it just says, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. And as someone who, some of you guys know my story, some of you don't, I wasn't married to Ben until I was 34. There are a lot of years, just so you know, between college and 34. Lots of years, okay? <laughs> and there were a lot of times that I longed for there to be someone, that I longed to be married. I wish someone loved me the way that I wanted to be loved. And I would read this and say, but wait, I will stop and I will stand on this truth that God, your love is better than life. Your love is better than the love I think I need, or I feel I need, or I think is lacking in my life. So I just want to say, that's originally where I was going to go. And some of you guys, that's what you're here for tonight. That's what you need to hear. That God's love is better than life, and is enough, and is sufficient, and is what you need more than you have any idea. I thought that's a great message for February, right? But then we started to meet and talk in the program team meeting about this text and sort of unpack what God might be saying. And we realized there was a lot more going on in here, that God had some other things to say to us tonight. So um, we started to realize as David is sitting in this chaos of his life and all the hurt and all the betrayal and hanging out in the Judean wilderness where it's hot and dry and lonely and difficult, David starts to declare things that he knows to be true. And he declares them so that he can remember that they're true. He might not feel them right now. He may not be experiencing them at this moment, but these are things that David has learned over the course of his life, and he starts to declare them. Like, as a way to remember, I'm going to stand on what I know in the midst of my chaos. Okay, so let's take a look at some of the things he says. The very first verse, he starts with, Oh God, you are my God. And you have to stop right there and go, that is a very simple sentence, but it is really powerful, right? No matter what I'm facing, no matter how hard this is, no matter what I don't feel or see about God, or even the questions I have about God and who he is and what he's doing in my life, I'm going to stop right now and I'm going to say, God, you are my God. And just that sentence, just that declaration changes everything. It changes your perspective. Because if that's true, then there's all these other things that are true. And David goes on to say all these other things about God, but he starts here. You are my God, therefore this is what I know. He keeps going. He says, I've seen you in my life. I've seen you move. I've seen you act. I've beheld your power and your glory. God, you're my God. I've seen you. I know what you're capable of. I've seen you do the impossible. I'm not seeing it right at this moment, but I've seen it, and I'm going to say it so I don't forget what it's possible for you to do. I love this from the desert, in this hot, dry place where he's lost everything. He literally says, not my soul might be satisfied, or I might get some some care or some provision. He says, my soul will be satisfied. 
You will be enough. You will take care of me. My soul will be satisfied. You are my help. Not maybe you'll be my help or, oh God, please be my help. You are my help. And I'm going to stand on that. You are my help. Oh, sorry, wrong one. Your right hand will uphold me. I know that you're going to care for me. I know that you're going to hold me up when I'm falling. The king, whoops, let's see. They who seek my life will be destroyed. He's pretty confident of this. David has seen a lot. He has seen God destroy his enemies. He's seen God deliver him time and time again. He says, I, I will rejoice in you because I know who you are. I've seen what's cap what you're capable of. I know you will deliver me even though I can't imagine it right now and I can't see a way. It's really amazing. I think maybe David was proclaiming these things into his situation when he didn't see them, he didn't feel them. It was so he could remember. So he could stand on what he knew in the midst of what he did not know or what he did not understand, knowing God would sustain him, God would help him. He had a firm place to stand. So I wonder if his words can help us do that into our chaos. What if we did what David did? What if we looked at our chaos, the things we've lost, the, the things that are uncertain, the disappointments that we're facing that we wish weren't reality? What if we could look into those situations and we may still cry and we may still be angry or frustrated or hurt, but what about in the midst of that, what if we were to declare and say, God, you are my God. I am going to stand on the truth of what I know no matter what, and I believe that you will see me through. What if we did that? And what if we started declaring that to each other? So I want to share with you an example of, of someone I've seen do this in my life. Um, I spent, right after college, I spent about 10 years working at Spring Hill camps. Anybody go to Spring Hill as a camper or work there? Any of the Spring, love in, Spring Hill love in the room a little bit? Um, in the fall of 2000, when I was on staff there, um, our director at the time, Mark Olson, uh, in the fall of 2000 was diagnosed with cancer. And it was very devastating for all of us in that community at the time. Through that very, very difficult season of diagnosis and and the prayers literally of a huge community of believers like across the globe that were praying for Mark and his healing. And then through his eventual death nine months later, I watched Mark and his wife Lisa do exactly what we see David doing in the desert. No matter what they faced, no matter how scared they were or how painful the situation became to them, they did everything in their power to declare the goodness and glory of God. Because we were really good friends, I offered to Lisa um, to stay with her in the hospital, which turned out to be the night before Mark died. So we were actually sleeping in a hospital room a couple doors down from him where they were letting us stay for the night. And we slept a few hours, and I remember waking up in the morning, and Lisa literally sat up in her bed, and the first thing she said to me, not like, oh, what an awful day, oh, this is so hard. The first thing she said to me was, oh, wow, Mark lived one more day. He has one more day to declare the glory of God. I was like, 
are you for real right now? <laughs> like, this is the situation you're in and that's what you're saying? Like, you have one more day to declare God's glory? It was absolutely mind-blowing to me. Recently, um, Lisa wrote a letter to friends of ours who were going through a really difficult situation. And I asked her this week if I could read some of this letter to you because I think it explains kind of her process and it's kind of beautiful. So I'm going to read it to you if you just want to listen um, to her words. She says, I know that during my journey with Mark, many people would ask, how is it that you can have peace and love God without anger? It seemed like they were asking, how is it that your faith is real? Of course, there were times of anger and frustration, fear, feeling alone or abandoned, doubt, etc. Those emotions can all coexist with faith and love and trust. When we think of how we relate to God, we tend to think binary, that we either love him or we don't. We trust him or we don't. We're angry at him or we're not. But the truth is, like any relationship, you can be absolutely in love with someone and still be angry at them. Or trust someone with all your heart and yet feel distant from them. We knew that our peace and our strong theology and confidence in God's goodness and our certainty that he suffered with us and grieved with us did not come overnight. It came from decades of trusting God with little things and big things, continuing to love and trust God through miscarriages, our son Abe's autism, our daughter Amelia's epilepsy, challenges in our marriage, challenges at work, chronic health situations of our own, and the other stuff life gave us, the opportunity to cultivate faith. It actually felt cool when we heard Mark's diagnosis to just be able to look into each other's eyes and say, okay, we get to step off the platform now and see if the harness holds, knowing that it would. I don't think there was a moment that we did not experience God's absolute embrace, fighting for this good gift of life, even while opening our hearts and arms to the probability of surrendering it trusting in the promises that Mark would be with Jesus. Amazing words. Just like Mark and Lisa, we get to practice this kind of trust and faith all the time. In the little things like the tough exam you have this week, the project you don't think you have enough time to get done, the friendship that's strained right now in your apartment, um, the bill that you're not sure how you're going to pay, those are all chances to practice standing on what you know. Sometimes it comes with bigger things, like the illness of someone you love or the ending of a relationship that you don't want to end, or just a big disappointment that you didn't see coming. And sometimes God lets us practice this in bigger ways, right? Like David and like Mark and Lisa, if we keep standing on the truth that we know in these little things and bigger things and bigger things, when the really big stuff, if it comes, which I hope it doesn't, but if and when that happens, you know where to stand. You know what you know what you know in the midst of what you don't. So what are you facing right now? What are the little things? What are the big things? What's your chaos? What will you declare to yourself, to the world around you? 
about the truth of God that you can stand on when life is crazy and you have no idea what's going on. And honestly, maybe you're not sure. Like, maybe you're like, I don't know what to stand on. I don't know what that truth is yet. I haven't experienced decades of things like Mark and Lisa or like David. Here is where you find it. This book is full of truth and full of promises of God that will give you a firm place to stand and help you know what truth is about God. So will you choose to declare it? Will you choose in whatever you're facing right now, will you choose to declare, this is what I know about God. I may not feel it right now. I may not really know or see it, but here's what I know. Here's what this word tells me, and here's what I'm going to stand on. Will you declare it and choose to stand on it? Will you declare it to the people around you that are hurting? Because all of you know someone who's in some kind of chaos right now. Will you say, this is a truth I know about God, and I'm going to declare it to them, and I'm going to help them stand on that truth even when they're not sure they can right now? Some of us are in chaos, and some of us aren't, and that's okay. But will you practice declaring the truth of God? And here's the other cool thing. We're all going to go somewhere for spring break, whether you're going on a trip with campus ministry or a trip with other, someone else, or you're just going to go home, or you're going to go rest at the beach. Like wherever you go off into the world this week, there are going to be people you encounter that are hurting, that are living in some kind of chaos and need a place to stand. So will you be the voice? Will you say, this is what I know? This is what's true, and here is what you can stand on. Will you offer that to the world that you encounter as you head off? So I want to show you this picture now. I love this picture. Of this little baby kind of nestled in to his mom. And there's this verse in Psalm 63, if you look at verse 8. It says, my soul clings to you. And your right hand will uphold me. And I love this picture when I think about these words. This little baby is just clinging. And and not clinging like stressed out, afraid clinging. He's like clinging and at peace. Right? He's resting. He's not wondering if his mom's really going to hold him. He's just clinging. And he's just at peace. So can we do that as we stand on what we know, what we know, what we know? midst of what we don't, will you cling, but will you cling like this, trusting that God will hold you up? So here's what I'd like to do. I want to close by praying, and, and the prayer for tonight will be the words of Psalm 63. And I just want you to listen, like what truth in here is God speaking to you, into your situation? What truth does he want you to declare to a friend or to the world you encounter as you head out on spring break. So listen for that truth. Let this be your prayer, and then we're going to sing and worship um, our God together. So close your eyes and pray with me. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you and my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. 
I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I will sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand will uphold me. Amen. <laughs>